This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Political scientists and all students of politics, welcome to New Books in Political Science. I'm Susan Lee Bell, and today we welcome Jonathan Hopkin, Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at the London School of Economics, to discuss his new book, Anti-System Politics, The Crisis of Market Liberalism in Rich Democracies, published by Oxford University Press, expected in March or the very start of April 2020. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Uh, Thanks for having me. So many people understand the rise of Trump or the success of Brexit as the result of nativism or racism or hostility to migrants. Um, But your book uses comparative case studies of the United States, the UK, Spain, Italy, Greece, to argue that the rise of the xenophobic right and the anti-capitalist left are part of the same global trend, uh, anti-system politics. So I, I was wondering if you could walk us through the basic claims of the book, and, um, and then we'll get to the meats of the argument uh, that you make in the various chapters. Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, so the way you summarized it right now is 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 correct. Um, so what I'm trying to argue here is that fundamentally the this very kind of disruptive kind of politics we're seeing in in, in Western democracies um, at the moment. So Trump, Brexit being good examples, but also things like the independence movement in Catalonia, the rise of the left in Greece and Spain and Portugal, very recent election of Sinn Féin in Ireland, or at least the success of Sinn Féin in Ireland in the recent elections. All of that is part of a broad global trend of uh, reaction against the kind of politics that has dominated really since the 90s uh, across the rich democracies. And that's a politics of acceptance of the sort of broad um, market liberal settlement, if you like. So globalization, open borders, limited government intervention, the economy, um, restraints on government spending and so on, Uh, uh, combined with a kind of uh, um, lack of serious alternative thinking in the political system more broadly. So all the main political parties and candidates generally uh, saying similar things and and nobody really challenging um, um, the, the the consensus position. So what I'm arguing is that over time this has led to increasing discontent in Western electorates, and that this has accelerated after the financial crisis of late two thousands, and has led to a variety of different forms of of, of re- revolt, if you like, against this you know broad market liberal uh, consensus. So you lay out in the book two sort of separate moments. One is the 
abandoning the post-war model of egalitarian capitalism beginning roughly in the 1970s, but also the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. Can you say a little bit more about this moment in the 70s and the shift that is made then towards uh, more technocratic government, uh, something that leaves less room for the voters and expand upon that? And then also, what happens uh, in 2007-2008 as you see it? How does the financial crisis then affect or infect politics, depending on your point of view? Right. Well, to kind of take that backwards, for a second, I think there's uh, frequently uh, um, a tendency to see the financial crisis of the late 2000s as a kind of shock, a kind of unexpected uh, uh, implosion of the financial system that brought about a series of political consequences. And I very strongly argue in the book that, that the financial crisis does have uh, consequences and that the main reason why uh, politics has been so volatile in the last decade is because of the harm and the, the the pain and suffering caused by the financial crisis. But I place that within the context of a longer term shift, starting roughly uh, in in the late nineteen seventies, away from attempts what what I um, call in the book uh, democratic capitalism, attempts to use democratic politics to shape, constrain, adapt the market system, the capitalist uh, system to social needs. Um, And, you know, this is a kind of a well-known story, what happens uh, with the collapse of the Bretton Woods system uh, in the early 70s, the increasing inability of governments to protect themselves against the volatility of financial flows. Um, And then this kind of political push led by Reagan in the US, Thatcher in the UK towards more pro-market types of policies, rolling back the the role of government in the economy um, and policies which became increasingly spread across the whole of the the, uh, Western democracies in a variety of ways. But there's a general trend towards more market liberal positions, even in the sort of advanced welfare states of of, uh, continental and northern Europe. This kind of weakens um, the foundations of uh, of democracy because political parties, elected politicians, kind of give up on trying to control um, the economy in ways which would allow them to deliver on the kind of promises politicians tend to make. We're going to raise living standards. We're going to look after people. We're going to offer... Uh, social services. We're going to protect you if you lose your job. We're going to allow you to uh, to improve your lives, to educate your children, and so on. Politicians are increasingly unable to really guarantee any kind of positive changes, and they're increasingly telling people, "Well, you know, it's a marketplace out there. You have to survive in an increasingly competitive global environment. We can maybe help you do that, but ultimately, um, you're on your own." and um, this kind of, as well as creating insecurity amongst uh, a lot of people in society, it also detaches citizens, voters, from the people who represent them. Um, so the connection between voters and political parties is is weaker and weaker. And people, when they vote in elections, are less and less confident that they're really voting for somebody to do things for them, to look after them, to protect them from you know the volatility and uncertainty 
of a market system. So, you know, this is already happening in 2008. We're already seeing an increasing tendency of people to not vote at all across West, Western democracies, declines in membership of political parties, um, and even amongst people who do vote, they're less and less likely to vote for the same party consistently. They're more and more likely to change their vote from one election to the next and even begin to vote for sort of outsider parties. Um, uh, and of course, after the financial crisis with the severe hit that people uh, 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 suffer in most Western countries, then the likelihood of people rejecting the established political elite and seeking solutions elsewhere um, uh, increases very rapidly. You argue that anti-systems politics arise from the failings of our political institutions to represent these popular demands, but you, you don't believe populism explains our recent politics uh, in Europe, the UK, and the US. Would, would you explain for the listeners your preference for anti-system as opposed to populist, since that term is out there and over and over over again. Yeah, so I think populism is a difficult concept to use to talk about uh, these kind of things for a number of reasons. First of all, because the way in which populism has entered the public sphere in political debates, in the media, um, it is used, generally speaking, to describe politicians like Trump. Or uh, or right wing politicians, especially right wing anti immigrant or xenophobic politicians in Europe, such as Salvini in France or Le Pen, uh, sorry Salvini in Italy and Le Pen in France. Um, and of course, populism, as men, many Americans are well aware, has a much more varied tradition. There have long been populist movements on the left as well as on the right. So I was. Because a big part of the story I'm trying to tell is how anti-system politics is not necessarily solely right-wing, I wanted to avoid um, creating confusion by using the term populism, which many people tend to associate with kind of quite authoritarian kind of rhetoric, and especially this kind of xenophobic, uh, anti-globalization, anti-foreigner uh, kind of sentiment. Um, there is another reason, though, which is that um, as you know, political theorists and Scholars in political science are, are, are well aware that populism is quite a um, contradictory and an ambiguous term. There are many different meanings that, are, that have been developed in uh, in, in political science to, uh, of the word populism. And I, I just wanted to tr- get out of <laughs> that debate. I didn't want to turn the book into a discussion of the concept of populism. And I think the concept of anti-system politics captures nicely what I'm really interested in talking about, which is those political movements which reject um, the political establishment, if you like, Um, by which I mean the political parties that have dominated democratic politics in Western countries, uh, usually for many decades. Um, So if we look at American politics, obviously, Democrats and Republicans have been the dominant uh, forces in American politics for um, at least a century, uh, and in most European countries, uh, very often the same political parties that are, have been governing in the recent period of political parties that were governing um, half a century or longer ago. So the Conservatives and the Labour Party in Britain, um, uh, the um, uh, Christian Democrats or the Social Democrats in Germany and so on. So 
anti-system politics, I thought, captured uh, the various ways in which political movements can emerge to contest that political establishment and and seek to break the kind of monopoly, the ol- oligopoly, if you like, or cartel of these establishment politics. So, so using the word populism, I thought would have have kind of introduced an unnecessarily la- unnecessary layer of uh, complexity and confusion to that. I think when some people talk about populism, they are thinking about cultural reasons for the arise of a leader who emphasizes the fact that that the people are not being um, uh, appropriately cared for, that we're bailing out a bank, we're opposing austerity on citizens. You, are throughout the book, are very careful about separating out culture from economics. Um, So if I understand you correctly, you would look at these observers of politics who believe that cultural factors are what explain the rise of leaders from the left and the right who run as against the system. Um, you say that it's sort of, it's superficially plausible, but, but the economics provides a much more powerful argument. So can you walk us through uh, how it is that you think about xenophobia, how you think about the economics, how you weigh those, um, and why you tend towards uh, understanding economics as, as, as the variable that we should be looking at? Yeah, well, um... This is, um, I think, the, the, the crux of the, um, the debate that we're having at the moment about why is it that you get a Trump? Why is it that Britain voted to leave the European Union? Uh, and why is it that uh, you get politicians following similar kind of hardline and especially anti-foreigner rhetoric in, in many other countries? Obviously, if you only focus on those right-wing uh, cases, it's very easy to draw the conclusion that it's all about culture and it's about immigration and uh, cultural diversity and identity politics. So if you only select right-wing populism, if you like, um, as the thing you're trying to explain, then a cultural argument is, is, is indeed very, very compelling because it's true that the electoral uh, survey data we have suggests that indeed Voters who vote for politicians like Trump or Salvini or uh, or who voted for Brexit in the UK do also tend to register high scores and uh, anti-migrant sentiment uh, and other sort of right-wing um, uh, social cultural um, um, positions attitudes. But the problem is that if you cast your uh, gaze a little bit further. Uh, a field and start to look at what's been going on, for instance, in Southern Europe, uh, in countries like Greece or Spain or Portugal, and even Italy to some extent, then what you can see is a much more varied picture of anti-system politics, which is not only on the xenophobic right, but also on the anti-capitalist left. Um, And in some cases, almost exclusively on the anti-capitalist left. So if we look at Portugal, um, there is no representative in the Portuguese parliament and has been known adopting these kind of uh, far-right positions. Uh, in Spain, one ha- a right-wing party, a far-right party, has emerged recently, but again, um, took a long time to emerge and is not as dominant a force as it is in some other countries. And in Greece, too, the far-right was 
definitely less important than the anti-capitalist, anti-austerity left. So if these kind of movements are emerging at more or less the same time as these far-right forces are also gaining in, in, in strength, then it seems really unlikely that a uniform cultural backlash against immigration and diversity could be driving both of these very, very different kinds of movements. And instead, what we see is that um, anti-system politics more generally, of both left and right, uh, seems to prosper most in the countries that have suffered most from rising inequality and in particular the austerity and lack of growth in living standards that has followed the financial crisis. So for the, that quite simple, um, pulling that quite simple logic, it seems to me that the cultural story is at best incomplete. Um, and then there is research, uh, which I cite in the book, more and more research coming out, which analyzes in a much more detailed, drilled down way, the electoral dynamics behind various uh, results that we've seen across the Western democracies. And you see that um, um, declines in living standards, cuts to welfare programs, um, economic decline more broadly are all very, very good predictors of the rise of uh, anti-system politics. And as a result of that, it seems to me um, um, a little bit misleading to suggest um, that immigration might have sparked off this kind of reaction. I understand wanting to distinguish uh, the left and the right and also trying to be comprehensive. And I think actually uh, one of the book's strengths is that this is not a case study of one place and then a few others that are superficial or sidelines or straw men. It really is um, you know, a very nicely done distribution of, um, of places and parties so that you can make a more general argument. Maybe because I'm in the United States, I'm more focused on the case from the right, well, actually, or from both, from both Bernie Sanders uh, and you note in the book are both coming from the same anti-systems approach. But, you know, as you note, anger, and you identify that there is an enormous amount of anger at the system and the technocrats that depended upon this capitalist neoliberal system to produce outcomes, that this anger can be, in fact, directed in different ways depending upon the narrative of how we talk about it and what the cause of it was. And so I I think one of the things that I was really puzzled about um, was even if... um, Economics is the more powerful argument. Um, what? How do you think about uh, culture? How do you think about race? For example, how can we explain why poor working class uh, black and brown people in the United States would in fact stay with Hillary Clinton, um, who was the neoliberal, if their anger should have, their economics should have somehow trumped um, uh, culture. So, so I'm not asking you to uh, in any way take back the main claim. I'm just trying to figure out how culture nestles into the claims about economics. Yeah, I mean that's that's a a great question, and um, the answer is that although I'm adopting a very kind of economics focused um, account here. And um, and I definitely feel that the economics, and in particular the kind of distributional effect of neoliberal reforms, which is 
you know, led to greater inequality, vast concentration of, of income uh, at the top of the distribution, especially in the United States, also in the UK. Um, all of that has created um, a lot of uh, economic distress for people at the bottom of, of, of the um, distribution and also a lot of anger at so many people at the top doing, doing so well. But of course, if you observe um, the economy collapsing, if you observe that you are not doing as well as you once did or that your kids are not going to have the future that you had, you can be angry, but to be able to cast a vote to do something about it, you need to have some kind of idea about what has gone wrong and, and how it can be resolved. And of course, there are different ways of interpreting how the economy turned down and, and how we can pull it back up again. And of course, Trump has a story. Trump's story was that the system was rigged, that uh, the international trading uh, uh, environment was rigged against American interests, that uh, China and, and other countries were uh, exploiting uh, the US, um, and that uh, also inside American society, certain groups were uh, taking others for a ride. Um, um, for instance, Wall Street was seen as being culpable in uh, in um, in the um, the decline of, of, of middle class America. But at the same time, Trump also was appealing to you know thinly veiled and often not at all veiled uh, racist sentiment um, to do with the dependency of poorer people on the welfare system and so on. So that is one interpretation of one went, what went wrong with the American economy, which can appeal to certain types of voters. But of course, there are there are others in other interpretations. Bernie Sanders' interpretation, in some ways, is really quite similar to Trump's. He also rails against Wall Street. He also contests the way globalization has affected American workers. But of course, his remedies uh, do not involve, or at least. Um, I think most people would would agree they do not involve uh, any kind of racist sentiment that they're instead about reorganizing American capitalism so that it's more redistributive that it adopts some of the kind of social welfare uh, institutions that are common in Europe and so on and so on. So even if you share the diagnosis that the economy's gotten bad and that it has affected you badly and that it's been bad for society, you can have very very different ways of framing the solution. Um, now, why do some people go for the Trump version and some people go for the Sanders version? And of course, if um, in relation to your question, the reason why some uh, left-leaning American voters uh, still voted for Hillary Clinton despite her centrist credentials in 2016 was because the alternative was Donald Trump, not, not, not Bernie Sanders in the actual presidential election. This time around, there may be a different set of choices, but Undoubtedly, Sanders' rise is uh, responding to the same kind of disquiet that, that, that brought us Trump, but of course, proposing very different kinds of solutions. Now, it's not random that a voter would go for the Sanders versus the Trump uh, solution because you know voters have attitudes, ideologies, uh, um, policy preferences, which... Um, you know, uh, more likely to fit with a Sanders story compared to a Trump story. And in particular, you can kind of see this through the prism of demographics. So older and less educated voters, especially in rural or, or semi-rural 
uh, areas are more likely to go for a, a, a right-wing uh, anti-system response, whereas younger, more urban voters, especially non-white voters, are probably more likely uh, to go for the, the left-wing variant. And we see this same kind of pattern playing out in Europe too. In the UK, it's much the same. Brexit was supported especially by older voters, by voters without a university education, without college degrees, and especially by voters who did not live in the major cities, whereas the um, the kind of equivalent to Sanders in the UK, which is Jeremy Corbyn's uh, uh, Labour Party, um, disproportionately won support amongst younger voters, especially voters with college degrees living in the big cities. So, so that's my kind of long, you know, uh, long of the short of it, why it is that you can get uh, different forms of anti-system politics. And this this model more or less predicts quite a lot of what's going on across a wide range of Western countries. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I think this is a good time to talk a little bit about um, how you wrote the book, uh, the type of evidence, the kind of research that you do. So would, would you say a little bit about the work that you did before anti-system politics and also the the type of data that is used to reach the conclusions that the book does. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this book actually for me is, has been a great opportunity to bring together two broad threads in, in my, my research career that at times have kind of moved in parallel, but, but in this book, I've been able to bring them together. And one has been uh, political parties and the way they organize and the way they connect with voters. Um, and in particular, I've been very interested in whether or not parties are able to be representative, whether they're able to actually mobilize broad constituencies around collective goods, or whether instead they are increasingly um, narrowly based organizations which depend heavily on vested interests and sometimes wealthy interests and are less able to actually build um, broad. Um, broad collective uh, interests um, and implement policies in defense of them. So that's been one strand, but the, in most of the recent period, I've been kind of more interested in the political economy of inequality and why it is that some countries have higher inequality than others, and why some countries have been more exposed to the kind of inequality and insecurity generated by market liberal um, um, arrangements. Um, and obviously, in particular, after the the financial crisis, so this book allowed me to bring these two two strands of research together by asking how we could understand changes in party politics through the prism of what's been happening to the economy and what's been happening to the distribution of income income and wealth, and how the failings of the mainstream or establishment political parties in Western countries have prevented them really um, Responding to social demands, uh, demands for greater security, greater greater quality, greater economic um, um, certainty, if you like, um, and how that has created 
the space, the opportunity for um, for new political forces uh, to to you know, win votes at their expense and carve out a, a niche of their own around sort of alternative ideas about how how our democracies democracies should be run. I mean, in terms of the the methods and data, I it's mainly a case study oriented book. So I have a chapter which brings together some basic statistical uh, analysis of patterns of inequality, the way, the extent to which countries were affected by the the financial global financial crisis, and the way that um, affected different sectors of society in different ways, and also. Uh, obviously, I've had to kind of look around and, and attempt to observe and measure the extent and nature of anti-system politics across different countries. So that's involved looking at um, vote shares for different types of anti-system parties, looking at electoral volatility, the extent to which voters are, are likely to change their minds from one election to the next or reject mainstream political parties. And that analysis forms the basis for the selection of case studies, um, which um, which are selected on the basis of trying to figure out why anti-system politics takes different forms in different places. So the UK and the US were nice cases where we saw both the emergence of a kind of economic nationalist or even xenophobic right, but at the same time, the resurgence of the so- socialist left. Um, but in Europe, um, we have a different collection of cases, which allows us to refine uh, our thinking a little bit about what kinds of anti-system politics emerge out of which kinds of social, political, economic context. So in, in, in Northern Europe, we have relatively uh, weaker anti-system politics. The mainstream parties have held on a little bit better, and the ex- to the extent there is anti-system politics in, in those countries, and we're talking about places like Germany, Sweden, the Netherlands, and so on, um, it tends to be the uh, anti-system right, the xenophobic right, that does better than the um, anti-capitalist left. In Southern Europe, it's the other way around. So in Southern Europe, the, the anti-system right has been weaker, with the exception of Italy, but even in Italy, there's been a very strong uh, anti-system left. Um, and I try to explain that difference in terms of the way in which the Eurozone crisis, which is, of course, the kind of microcosm uh, of the global financial crisis within the Eurozone, divided countries in terms of their uh, creditor or debtor status. So in creditor countries, I found that, uh, uh, in other words, in countries which were running export surpluses and were able to uh, uh, lend money to to other countries rather than um, be borrowers in those countries. The anti-system right did better than the anti-system left, and in the debtor countries, countries like Italy, Spain, Greece, which had big external liabilities, uh, the anti-capitalist left um, did better. And so, by talking through those cases, I was able to explain why the different position of these countries in this kind of creditor-debtor uh, dimension provided different opportunities to different types of anti-system movement. Clearly, you believe that neoliberalism offers no solutions, but I'm wondering, um, as I read the book, I think I know what you want, but I guess I'd rather ask you since I have you here. Um, what do you want? Uh, obviously, neoliberalism won't, won't do it and has failed, um, and it's been a long time that we can 
you can chart that. So, so now what? Yeah, well, uh, that that that's probably for the sequel. Um, in the conclusion to the book, I do try to draw out a little bit the implications of what I'm arguing on on the most on the crudest and most basic level. Um, I think uh, one of the the only way to really um, solve the problem of anti-system politics is to re-establish something which looks a little bit like the democratic capitalism of the uh, period before the 1980s, if you like. Um, this may seem hopelessly naive and backward-looking, and to an extent it is, um, because it is very difficult to get the uh, toothpaste back into the tube once we've uh, created a world economy where you cannot control capital flows very easily. Uh, it becomes very hard to actually run economies the way they were run in Western countries in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. But but that doesn't mean um, that we should give up on the idea of trying to control capitalism a little bit uh, more strongly in order to protect people from the downsides of a, of a capitalist system. In some of these um, measures can relatively easily um, be implemented even in the current um, the current world economic environment, and that is to simply attempt to make um, taxation and uh, social spending more equitable and more uh, redistributive. And all of that can be done uh, with, you know, uh, as long as there's sufficient political will and sufficient political support, um, there's no good technical reason why government should not be able to do uh, some of those things. I think. Much more fundamentally, though, what we need to do, and I don't really have the answer to this uh, myself, but I, I think I have the right question, which is we need to try and think about how we can protect society from the what you could call the blackmail power of global capitalism. Um, countries, and we saw very, very clearly in the financial crisis that when global financial markets lose confidence in a country. Um, and the usual reason for that is because that country is um, running some kind of uh, deficit, either a government deficit or a current account deficit, usually both, then um, governments have very little power to resist um, this threat of uh, investors to pull their money out. And in those circumstances, it's impossible to really look after uh, your electorate. It's impossible to um, generate the resources to be able to protect people from economic downturns and attempt to get economies moving again. Um, the Eurozone crisis, which forms um, a, a chunk of, of, of my analysis in this book, is a very good demonstration of how even when you have um, the right institutional um, resources to be able to do something about that. Uh, if you have the wrong politics, you can still fail. So the Eurozone crisis was, um, the euro is still there. So in a way, it was a, the, the response to the Eurozone crisis was a success, at least in that respect. But in terms of the, the, the terrible economic suffering that resulted in countries like Greece, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, and, and still in Italy, and the relatively under 
overwhelming economic performance, even of the more successful countries in Northern Europe, this suggests um, you know, a political failure. And it's a political failure that resulted from the inability of mainstream political parties to actually be more bold and use the tools available to um, the Eurozone um, decision makers um, to protect societies from this uh, capitalist blackmail power, if you like, and 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 act to promote a rapid economic recovery, which would protect the weaker people in society from long-term unemployment, declining living standards. So my reading of the economics uh, literature and following economics debates over the last decade or so, I don't think the problem is that we haven't figured out how to do those things. I think the um, the problem really is that we haven't been able to constitute a strong enough political coalition to achieve them. Um, the, and the reason that hasn't happened is because the mainstream political parties of both left and right in our democracies have shown a real lack of courage, uh, a lack of intellectual openness, um, and a lack of will to actually do those things. The rise of anti-system parties in many ways is very unwelcome. I'm very uh, uncomfortable with the success of kind of right-wing xenophobic economic protectionist uh, political movements. But it is also true that the alternative, kind of more conservative, um, orthodox approach, which we've seen not only in conservative mainstream parties, but also in socialist and social democratic mainstream parties in Europe, is not going to provide an answer either. And so the, this voter revolt, this anti-system revolt, at the very least, has forced mainstream political parties to start thinking a little bit more about how we can protect society from the uh, volatility of a capitalist economy. And we're, and we're seeing this. We're seeing it not necessarily very successfully so far, but the uh, the strong stirring of Sanders in the current primary campaign, the fact that Jeremy Corbyn could get elected to leader of the Labour Party, although he failed to win an election, these are early signs uh, that things can change. And we've also seen in countries like Spain and Portugal um, um, similar movements towards trying to curb capitalism in the public interest. Throughout the book, you, you draw parallels between 1930, 2006. 1930s had the war. Um, is it possible to recalibrate without catastrophe? I think you're suggesting what would need to happen, um, but did much of that happen because of catastrophe? Can, yeah. can how would how would the system uh, heal itself uh, apart from a candidate like Bernie Sanders, for example, possibly coming out and winning, and then we would have two anti-systems politics debates yeah. in the same election. Yeah, um, well, I'm 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 very hopeful, obviously, that we can manage to get out of this without a war. And I think part of the reason why I'm reasonably confident that, that it's not going to be a repeat of the 1930s is that however bad things have been um, for working people over the last decade or so, they're certainly nowhere near as bad as they were in the 1930s. So obviously, um, Western democracies are much richer countries. We all to a greater or lesser extent, have welfare systems that protect most people from the worst sides of economic 
downturns. And also, even though I think I sometimes worry that we're losing sight of the lessons of the mid 20th century, but um, I think there's still enough awareness of, of, of the fact that any kind of militaristic response to economic downturns uh, could potentially lead to catastrophe. So I think for all those reasons, um, I don't think it's going to lead us down that terrible path. But at the same time, it is certainly true that the war did concentrate minds in a number of ways and allow Western countries to come out of the war um, and adopt some of the right institutions to create a capitalism which was inclusive and worked for most people. And my fear is that um, in the absence of those emergency conditions, it becomes very hard to actually take difficult decisions and challenge entrenched interests. Let's remember that in the immediate post-war period, in even in countries like the United States or in Britain, which have never been particularly socialist-oriented countries, um, top rates of tax um, reached over 90% for some of the highest earners. You can imagine the furore if any attempt was made to revive that now. Um, but in the 1940s and 50s, it was accepted because in a situation of national emergency, um, elites realized that they had to do whatever was necessary to hold society together and protect um, countries from military threat. And even after the war, the presence of the Soviet Union, which of course was not recognized as being an economic failure until much later, um, also helped concentrate minds, gave um, um, people in government and people in the uh, wealthy classes an awareness of the fact that if things went wrong, it could all get very bad for them. Uh, we don't really have that at the moment, but um, I think the rise of Sanders, the rise of Corbyn and left movements uh, across Europe um, is hinting at a, a need, if you like, for the wealthy elite to share the proceeds of economic growth more equitably. But at the moment, I get the feeling that um, things are not bad enough for the, to convince them uh, that, that they should do that now or, or to any really significant degree. And I think this is the real risk um, in the medium term for our democracies is that things can get bad, but they're nowhere near bad enough to persuade the people who have the ability to block change to actually embrace it and start to move back to a form of capitalism which is more consistent with a cohesive society. And that sounds right. And, and also, if you think about catastrophe, you know, the, the possible existential crisis that we're facing is climate change. And it's unclear how anti-system politics from the right or the left could create a narrative of mixing um, addressing climate change in a radical way and anti-systems, unless they were to say this is this is what this is what capitalism brought you, and here's how a revival of social democracy would uh, both solve the problems of uh, uh, vast inequality and the uh, the future catastrophe that might be coming. Yeah, I think I think um, if I were to rewrite the book now, I would have probably paid a lot more attention to to climate change and the ways in which climate change could be part of a story um, of how we re recalibrate capitalism, if you like, to make it more uh, consistent with social needs. There's no greater social need really than the, the need to have an environment that's habitable, 
Um, and it's also clear that uh, the way capitalism is working at the moment is is totally inconsistent with with that with that need. Um, the problem is that unlike a war, um, climate change is a relatively slow process. It's going way too <laughs> way faster than than is comfortable, but it's still not bad enough to make us think we got to stop this and we got to stop it now. Uh, we're like Saint, Saint Augustine, you know, make us make us virtuous, but 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 not yet. Um, but certainly, I think the the there is the potential for climate change, and I think the broadly shared these days um, recognition outside the American right, perhaps that something needs to be done, um, creates an opportunity for. Um, a politics which is not only more environmentally sustainable, but but also more socially equitable. Um, because if if for nothing else, uh, climate change is going to require a lot of coordination by government, um, the, even if it's something as minimalistic as introducing patterns of taxation which uh, try to disincentivize environmentally damaging behaviors. But more likely, it's probably going to involve some kind of major infrastructure effort, which probably can only be done if government takes the lead. And of course, the reason why um, neoliberalism is peculiarly unsuited to this is because it strips government of the power to take control of the economy, to re- direct uh, the resources of the economy towards social ends rather than letting them be allocated according to market forces. So in that sense, climate change is not for the left. Um, If we were to see two anti-system politics candidates, Sanders and Trump, face off, is your intuition, obviously this is beyond the research of the book, what what happens in is it does, does the anti-system piece neutralized or is it heightened? What would be the response from the public if both candidates are claiming to run against the system? That's a really good question, and um, uh, I I'm not foolish enough to make predictions. Um, <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be an extremely unusual election uh, by American standards, uh, at any rate. But the idea of a political context in which, on the one hand, you have a kind of very conservative uh, right um, set up against a kind of quite radical left um, seems much more unusual now than it might have done a few decades ago. Um, After all, you know, it was quite common in Europe for a very long time to have elections in which the gap in ideological terms between the major political parties was much, much greater than it became in more recent times. So if you think of the, t- take an example, in 1948 in Italy, an election pitted the Christian Democratic Party, which was very conservative in social cultural terms, um, against the Italian Communist Party. Those were the two main parties in Italian politics. Um, and similarly, in many other elections, in 1983 in Britain, we had uh, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party, sort of very neoliberal, uh, right-leaning party, set uh, against the Labour Party of Michael Foote, which was way, way, way to the left. So, so actually, the idea that elections could be a real choice between two radically different 
visions of society. This is nothing new in democracy. And in fact, in some ways, it may be necessary if we want to think about how to improve things and reform our societies for the better. I think pretending that there are no fundamental philosophical disagreements or pretending that different social groups don't have diametrically opposed interests is not going to help. We need to have these debates um, to understand how we can uh, um, govern our societies better. So tell me, um, what's your next project? <laughs> well, um, I mean, I've, I've been I've been trying to think about what what I'm working on a number of uh, different papers at the moment. But what I'm really interested in doing is delving a bit more deeply into um, the kind of cultural foundations of different economic models, if you like. So, and by cultural foundations, I'm talking about the role of political ideologies, but also of uh, organized religion in shaping the way capitalism works in different places. So I've long had a keen interest in Southern European politics. At the same time, I'm British. I work in Britain, spend a lot of time in the United States as well. Uh, and so I'm really interested in this contrast between a kind of uh, more Anglo-Saxon uh, individualistic uh, view of the world, which has shaped the political economies of Britain and the United States to a considerable extent, contrasted with uh, the kind of more, uh, if you like, more collectivist vision of society that is more common in Southern Europe, a collectivism which, which takes very different forms. On the one hand, the kind of more conservative Catholic version, and on the other, uh, a, a more socialist or even communist version which have led to market economies developing in Southern Europe to be very different different uh, types of arrangements to what we're used to in the, in the English-speaking world. And I'm, I'm, I've always been very curious to sort of try and see how much the kind of deep uh, cultural roots of these societies could help explain some of these uh, differences in how the economy is, is organized. Well, we'll look forward to that book, having another conversation. For now, I will say to everyone that this is a remarkably clear and well-written book. It is easy to work through any of the concepts that you're not familiar with. I say it's a political theorist going through the charts. Very easy. This is um, an important book. It's timely. It, as you're reading it, I think it would be very, very hard if you are in rich democracy not to see uh, elements of your own politics uh, new politics, politics of the past. I recommend it to everyone. Um, this is a forthcoming book, Anti-System Politics, The Crisis of Market Liberalism and Rich Democracies. It's from Oxford University Press. You can pre-order it now on the Oxford University Press website or pre-order it from your um, online providers, such as Amazon, as you wish. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Jonathan, and uh, for sharing this terrific new project with us. Thank you very much. It's been great fun. All right. Take care. Thank you.